Hi everyone, welcome to Logical Bible Study. This is the Catholic podcast where we take a really in-depth look at the scriptures and we try to pull them apart to understand the literal sense of the text. What does it mean on the most fundamental level? And this is called doing an exegesis of the text. And in this podcast, we have a go at doing that every day by bringing together the best information we have from Catholic scholars and from understanding the cultural context of the time in order to help you understand the gospel readings a little better. And so today we're looking at John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. That is the reading you would hear today at Mass. So we'll start by reading out the passage. It's a short one. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. Seeing his mother and the disciple he loved standing near her, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, this is your son. Then to the disciple he said, This is your mother. And from that moment, the disciple made a place for her in his home. So the context here, of course, Jesus is being crucified. This is in the crucifixion narrative. And so you can hear the entire crucifixion narrative, or John's version of it, that is read on Good Friday every single year at Mass. So you can hear the the full version of this on Good Friday. And most of the smaller parts of John chapter 18 and 19, we wouldn't really get to analyse in this podcast because they don't really appear in small chunks at other times of the year. But today we have one. We have uh, a small part of the crucifixion narrative that we can do an exegesis on like we normally would, because that's the reading the lectionary gives us today. So verse 25, near the cross of Jesus. Now, even this phrase is interesting because the other gospel authors say that at the foot of the cross, well, in fact, people weren't really at the foot of the cross at all. They were standing at a distance. Only John emphasizes that there are people standing at the foot of the cross And scholars have pointed out that this is beginning to fulfill what Jesus said earlier in the gospel about when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said that in chapter 12, and it's interesting, isn't it? Now he's being lifted up from the earth and people are being drawn to the foot of the cross. And then we have a list of people who are at the foot of the cross. So it's his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdala. So let's start with his mother. So we know that she's called Mary, of course, although John doesn't call her by name. He only ever calls her uh, Jesus' mother. And in fact, the other gospel authors don't tell us that Mary, his mother, is at the foot of the cross, but John does. And that might indicate that John has a particularly special relationship with Mary, which we're going to see in this particular passage as well. So Mary, his mother, is at the foot of the cross as Jesus dies. And of course, this particular scene is uh, one that many Catholics would meditate on as part of the rosary. And there's a lot of uh, spiritual things that can be drawn from this. So his mother is there at the foot of the cross watching him die. And this is, in a sense, a fulfillment of what was said at the start of Jesus' life. Remember when Mary brought Jesus into the temple shortly after he was born to be consecrated? There was a prophecy that was given to Mary at that time And it says, a sword will pierce your own soul. And many people see this moment when she's watching her son die. This is, in a sense, a fulfillment of that prophecy, that a sword will pierce her soul. That's in Luke chapter 2, verse 35. So Mary is not named in John's gospel, 
And there could be a couple of different reasons for that. Maybe John, the author, is trying to avoid confusion with the other Marys because there are so many women called Mary in the Gospels. It's a very common name at that time. So maybe in order to avoid confusion, he just calls her Jesus' mother. It's possible that John is also doing this for theological reasons. Maybe he's deliberately calling her Jesus' mother. And there might be uh, some theological motivations there. Maybe he wants to emphasize that Mary plays a symbolic role as the mother of the church. But that's just a theory. It's often very hard to reconstruct why gospel authors said particular things, and sometimes they're just best guesses. So also at the foot of the cross, we have his mother's sister, which is interesting. So here we learn that Mary had a sister. It's specifically said it's his mother's sister. Now, many believe that, remember, there's earlier passages in the Gospels where it talks about the brothers of the Lord. Uh, So, James and Joseph are two of Jesus' brothers. They're called his brothers in the Gospels, and they apparently live in Nazareth with Jesus' mother. Now, we're not 100% sure who exactly these people are. They're certainly not Jesus' own literal biological brothers because Mary didn't have other children. But many believe that those other so-called brethren of the Lord are in fact children of this woman who is Mary's sister. So basically, they would be Jesus' cousins. And that would make sense, actually, because Mary would live in Nazareth, probably her sister's living in Nazareth, and so it would be, uh, make a lot of sense that Jesus would spend a lot of time with his cousins in Nazareth, and they would come to be known as his brethren. So I think that theory makes sense, because we know from this passage that Mary has a sister. And there's even more support for this as well. If you look at the parallel passage for what we're reading today, the other gospel authors describe one of the women at the foot of the cross as Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. So Matthew 27 verses 56 specifically says that one of the women at the foot of the cross is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Now that James and Joseph are the people who are known as Jesus' brothers. Now, although Matthew's version doesn't identify that this Mary is Jesus' mother's sister, it does make sense. If we put the two Gospels together, I think we have a very clear case that this other woman, who is also called Mary, is the sister of Jesus' mother, and she, this other Mary, is the mother of James and Joseph, the brethren of Jesus. So they're basically his cousins. Um, It might seem strange to us that Mary would have a sister called Mary, but that's sort of how they did it in that culture, particularly in large families. They would tend uh, to often use the same names. So Mary was a very common name in that culture. We also have another woman at the foot of the cross here, according according to John, which is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, some people have suggested that perhaps this Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the other Mary that Matthew refers to, as in Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the mother of James and Joseph. That could also be true as well. Um, So, there is some confusion here about uh, which Mary maps onto which Mary. We have at least three Marys here at the foot of the cross. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. They're all definitely here. And it's possible that there's a fourth Mary. So his mother's sister may well be called Mary as well. So that you can see how it's very confusing. (laughs) And you've got to look at the text, um, you know, closely and see how they map onto other passages in scripture. So let's talk about Mary, the wife of Clopas. The fact that she's called the wife of Clopas indicates 
The Clopas would have been known to John's audience. Otherwise, there's no point in saying she's the wife of Clopas. Now, he's not mentioned in the Gospel of John, but it appears to be the same person who is mentioned in Luke's Gospel. He's one of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you remember that story, one of the disciples is called Cleopas, and it's probably the same person. Uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So, Clopas or Cleopas is one of the early leaders of the Christian community, and his wife is here at the foot of the cross. We also have Mary of Magdala at the foot of the cross. So, Mary comes from a town called Magdala, which has actually been discovered now, and you can go and see Magdala today. She's mentioned earlier in the other Gospels as a woman who has had seven demons cast out of her. We don't know a whole lot about Mary of Magdalene. She's not necessarily a prostitute. The Gospels don't say that. It's just that she did have demons and they were cast out of her. But she is going to have a starring role in the coming chapters. After Jesus' uh, resurrection, she has a very prominent role in the Gospel of John. Apparently, there's some other women who are nearby as well. We know that Joanna is possibly nearby and possibly some other women too. So, we should not see, you know, the list of women that John describes as the only women. There's just certain ones that he has decided to focus on. Now, to understand the next part of this reading, we need to keep in mind the status of women in that society, and in fact, the status of women in ancient societies in general. Women without a male protector had little or no social standing and very few societal protections. So, it was important that women, particularly older women, uh, had a man in their life who could look after them. Women depended on males. That's how it worked in that society. And that would usually be the husband or an older son, to help them survive. So we get to verse 26, and John says, seeing his mother and the disciple he loved. So now we learn there's someone else at the foot of the cross. It's the disciple who Jesus loved. He's never identified by name in John's gospel, but he is present in all the important scenes in Jesus' ministry. This disciple whom Jesus loved keeps popping up. In our introduction to the Gospel of John, in that bonus episode I recorded about the Gospel of John, we talked about who this disciple probably is, and it seems overwhelmingly likely that this disciple whom Jesus loved is the author of the Gospel of John. So that would probably be the Apostle John, John son of Zebedee. That would make good sense about why the author of the Gospel never names this disciple whom Jesus loved, because it's John himself, and I think that makes good sense. So, let's assume here that this disciple is John. So, he, Jesus from the cross sees his mother and John, and he says to his mother, woman. Now, we need to talk about this term woman, because to us in the 21st century, that sounds quite offensive, doesn't it? To call any girl, or particularly your mother, to call her woman. In that culture, it was not offensive. It was actually quite polite. It was equivalent to our madam. So, if you can, I actually think this is a Bible fact that is really helpful if you can keep in mind. Woman in the New Testament is equivalent to our modern day madam. It's actually a term of respect. So he says to his mother, woman, this is your son. Or most translations would say, behold your son. Roughly what that means is from now on, he will be like a son to you. That's basically what he's said so far. And then he turns to the disciple and he says, this is your mother, or behold your mother. And roughly, that means, treat her as your own mother. Now, it's not that the disciple, John, doesn't have a mother of his own, 
because we know from elsewhere in the Gospels that John does have a mother. In fact, she stars in a couple of scenes where she comes to Jesus. Uh, So John certainly has a mother. But rather, the point Jesus is making is he wants this disciple, John, to take care of Mary because Jesus is no longer going to be able to take care of Mary. He's going to die. So he wants to leave his mother in good hands. These are some of Jesus' final words from the cross. It's probably shortly after this that he, that he passes away. Why does Jesus give Mary to the disciple? What's going on here? There's one main reason, and that would be he wants his mother to be looked after after he's gone. That's the main reason why he sets up this arrangement where he gives Mary to John. There's another possible reason which might be involved here, which is that Jesus loves this disciple. He's called the beloved disciple. And he wants the disciple to experience the love of Mary. So he feels that uh, the beloved disciple would be a good match for Mary, for them to spend a lot of time together in the coming years, because he loves both Mary and the beloved disciple. So here the church sees an additional spiritual meaning, and many of you Catholics would have probably heard that at this moment, um, it's believed that not only did Jesus give Mary to the apostle, the beloved disciple, he also gives Mary to all Christians. It is at this moment that Mary becomes the mother of all Christians. And here's how the logic works for that. Since the beloved disciple represents all Christians to an extent, and in fact, probably that's a reason why John doesn't name the beloved disciple. He calls him just the beloved disciple. Maybe the point he wants to make is that this disciple represents all Christians because all Christians are beloved. Now, I think that makes sense, actually. So if we follow that logic, then if Mary is becoming the mother of the beloved disciple, and if the beloved disciple represents all Christians, well, then Mary, Jesus makes Mary the mother of all Christians. If that's right, then we can see this moment as Jesus completing his Christian family. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus talks about how in the Christian family, for Christians, Christ is our brother, God is our father, and now Mary is going to become our mother. That's one way of looking at why Jesus does this. And it's in this sense that at this moment when Mary becomes the mother of the church, she also becomes the new Eve. The church fathers often talk about how um, Jesus is the new Adam and Mary is the new Eve because Mary is, in quite a real sense, the mother of a new humanity, the church. She's the mother of a new group of people. Now, that is an interesting application because the church does actually see this moment uh, when Jesus says to the beloved disciple, Behold your mother, the church does see this as the moment in which Mary becomes the mother of the church. Now, that's not actually there on the literal sense, is it? But John apparently discerns and the church discerns that there is also a deeper deeper spiritual thing going on in this moment. And that's important uh, for the purposes of our podcast because we typically focus on the literal sense of the text. And in fact, the Catholic Church teaches that we have to start with the literal sense in order to understand Uh, the texts of the Bible, but the church also doesn't rule out that there can be legitimate spiritual senses of the text. Sometimes Jesus says things and sometimes the gospel authors say things which also have a secondary spiritual meaning, which is legitimate. And this is one of these texts where the church says, yes, there is an additional spiritual meaning here. Uh, Mary is also becoming the mother of the church at this moment. We get to verse 27, and John here, the author, says, From that moment, the disciple made a place for her in his home. Now, here we learn a couple of interesting things. 
If Jesus is giving Mary to the beloved disciple, it must be because her husband is dead. So Joseph must be dead by this point, otherwise there'd be no need for Jesus to arrange for Mary to be looked after. If you think about it, this also provides strong evidence that Jesus did not have brothers or sisters of his own. Otherwise, his brothers and sisters could have looked after Mary after Jesus is gone. In fact, in that culture, it was the responsibility of the eldest living son to look after the mother. That was actually the expectation. Since Jesus can no longer do this, he knows that he's about to die. If he had a brother, it would be natural for the brother to then become the person that looks after her. The fact that Jesus gives Mary to someone else strongly indicates that he has no brother. That actually makes sense, doesn't it? There would be no need for him to give Mary to John if he knew that Mary was going to be looked after by a different brother. In fact, it would actually be an insult for Jesus to make this arrangement if he did actually have brothers. The arrangement would not make sense. It would be quite insulting to his brothers. So I think that this is actually the strongest argument for the perpetual virginity of Mary. There's other arguments you can make, but I think this is the strongest biblical argument. This does seem to be evidence that Jesus does not have brothers or sisters of his own. Verse 27 continues, and here the Apostle John, notice that he says, from that moment, he made a place for her in his, in his home. So it indicates that the beloved disciple made preparations for this arrangement immediately. Possibly even that night, he went and received Mary into his home. Now that phrase, made a place for her in his home, it can actually be translated receive, which is interesting. And that word is often used to describe receiving heavenly realities. So um, earlier when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, it's the same Greek word there. So some think that when the beloved disciple here takes Mary into his home, it's also indicating that he's receiving a great and deep spiritual reality. Where is this home that he takes her into? That's disputed. There's different traditions about where exactly John and Mary lived for the rest of their life. It appears that they moved around a bit between Ephesus and Jerusalem. So they had multiple homes and they moved around. So that's the end of the text today. And if you want to hear that next little section, you can hear it on the Memorial of Mary, Mother of the Church. So uh, that's when the next section of John chapter 19 is read. Let's now turn to the Catechism and see what it has to teach us about this passage. And there's actually quite a few links here. Most of them have to do with Mary. And there's quite a few beautiful paragraphs here about how Mary is our mother. So paragraph 726 says, at the end of this mission of the spirit, Mary became the woman, the new Eve, the mother of the living, the mother of the whole Christ. That's an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? Because Mary is the mother of Christ. And we know that Christ's body is extended to become the church. So if Mary is the mother of the whole Christ, then she's the mother of the church as well. Paragraph 2618, it is at the hour of the new covenant at the foot of the cross that Mary is heard as the woman, the new Eve, the true mother of the living. So there in that paragraph, we clearly see the church's teaching is that at the foot of the cross, Mary becomes the new Eve, the mother of the church. That is Catholic teaching. Paragraph 501, this is in Mary Ever-Virgin. Jesus is Mary's only son, but her spiritual motherhood extends to all men whom indeed he came to save. The son whom she brought forth is he whom God placed as the firstborn among many brethren. 
that is, the faithful in whose generation and formation she cooperates with a mother's love. Paragraph 964, which is in the section about wholly united with her son, Mary's role in the church is inseparable from her union with Christ and flows directly from it. This union of the mother with the son in the work of salvation is made manifest from the time of Christ's virginal conception up to his death. It is made manifest above all at the hour of his passion. Thus the Blessed Virgin advanced in her pilgrimage of faith and faithfully preserved in her union with her son unto the cross. There she stood in keeping with the divine plan, enduring with her only begotten son the intensity of his suffering, joining herself with his sacrifice in her mother's heart and lovingly consenting to the immolation of this victim born of her to be given by the same Jesus Christ dying on the cross as a mother to his disciple with these words, woman, behold your son. Now that's quite a beautiful paragraph about the role of the Virgin Mary at the foot of the cross. And I'll include that paragraph in the show notes as well. Lastly, let's look at paragraph 2677 through to 2679. And this is about how the church is in communion with the Holy Mother of God. And it talks about how we pray to Mary. So here's what it says. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. By asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners and we address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. We give ourselves over to her now in the today of our lives and our trust broadens further already at the present moment to surrender the hour of our death wholly to her care. May she be there as she was at her son's death on the cross. May she welcome us as our mother at the hour of our passing to lead us to her son Jesus in paradise. Mary is the perfect Oran's prayer, a figure of the church. When we pray to her, we are adhering with her to the plan of the Father who sends his son to save all men. Like the beloved disciple, we welcome Jesus' mother into our homes, for she has become the mother of all the living. We can pray with her and to her. The prayer of the church is sustained by the prayer of Mary and united with it in hope. So again, another couple of amazing paragraphs there. So lots to meditate on in terms of the role of Mary, even though it's just three short verses today. All of those paragraphs will be in the show notes for you to look at. I hope you learned something new today. If you did, please share this with one other person so we can get more people hearing uh, the word of God in a proper, rigorous, um, but faithful way. Thanks. We'll see you tomorrow.